This webinar recording is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you're looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. Today we have a webinar by Zaina Anwar. She is a leading feminist activist, intellectual, and is a co-founder and former executive director of Sisters in Islam and the co-founder and director of Musawa, a global movement for equality and justice in the Muslim family. Our host for the webinar is Ali Salman. However, he had technical issues while conducting it, so I will be covering him in the podcast. The topic is... Seeking Equality for Women in Islam. Good evening, everybody. I'm really happy with this opportunity to share with you the work of Musawa and Sisters in Islam, two women's rights groups that I helped to co-found you know, over the years. The format is supposed to be, I'm supposed to speak for about 20 minutes, and then we will open to question and answer for about 40 to 45 minutes. Okay, I want to talk about my work over the past 30 years, which really has centered on the struggle for equality and justice for Muslim women living in Muslim contexts. And I think one of the most profound challenges we as Muslims face today is the search for ways to live our faith in a world where human rights, women's rights, and democracy constitute the dominant ethical paradigm of the modern world. In the 21st century, there cannot be justice without equality. For me, it's as simple and undisputable as that. As someone who believes that God is just, that Islam is just, I am outraged that so much injustice, cruelty, and violence are perpetrated in the name of Islam. I will not go into the long, depressing list of outrageous acts against women and children justified in the name of Islam that occurs daily throughout the Muslim world, as we are all too familiar with them, and we don't wish to be depressed further. What I want to share with you today is the courage and the will of Muslim women who are taking the lead to define how religion is understood and practiced, and who are demanding our experience of living Islam and being impacted by laws and policies made in the name of Islam give us the right and the authority to decide and shape what Islam means and should mean in our daily lives and as a source of law and public policy in our countries. It is because women have borne the brunt of this suffering in the name of religion that in many parts of the Muslim world today, it is women who are organized and are at the forefront of our societies in pushing for change in the understanding and practice of our religion, to recognize equality and justice, and to push for law reform to uphold these principles. But of course, bringing change is never easy. Those who have benefited from the status quo are resistant to change and use all kinds of tactics to demonize and delegitimize the voice of change. But the reality is women's lives throughout the world have changed. Our realities, our needs, our roles and status have changed. I don't need to provide the litany of statistics as well to show this transformation and how having women on boards and management positions actually increase productivity, efficiency and profit margins. How in reality today, women are both protectors and providers for their families. That most families, except for the most privileged, cannot survive on a single income. We have no problems embracing new technology and embracing advancement in science and medicine. But when it comes to embracing women's demands for equality and justice in the context of their changing realities on the ground, suddenly there is so much resistance. The man is the head of the household. He has a right to beat his wife. He has a right to divorce his wife at will. He has a right to demand obedience. He has a right to four wives. He has a right to double the share of inheritance, never mind if he has failed to provide and protect his family. Suddenly we're told all these values that have caused so much harm to women and family well-being in the Muslim world are the word of God and therefore cannot be questioned, let alone challenge or change. For many of us who have decided to engage with religion to fight for our rights, it is our utter faith in a just God and a just Islam that have made us embark on this perilous, but I believe a compelling public struggle to push for an understanding of Islam that recognizes the necessity, the urgent necessity, that we Muslim women be treated as human beings of equal worth 
and dignity. Why is that such a radical notion, I ask? We believe these principles and the ideals of equality and justice are intrinsic in the, in the Quran and are also upheld in universal human rights principles that regard all human beings as equal. What could be more Islamic than the first article of the UN Declaration on Human Rights which states, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. If we are equal in the eyes of God, why are we not equal in the eyes of men? This is a huge challenge we face today. How do we as Muslims reconcile the tenets of our faith to the challenge of modernity, of plurality, of changing times and circumstances? Can the teachings of Islam be reconciled with the realities and aspirations of living in the 21st century. I want to draw your attention to the work of Musawa and Sisters in Islam, the Malaysian NGO that gave birth to Musawa, and the incredible efforts of activists and scholars who have engaged in the production of new feminist and based knowledge in Islam and create in creating a public voice at the national and international levels pushing for the possibility and necessity of reform of Muslim laws and practices to uphold the principles of quality and justice. What we have been doing is to bridge the seeming divide between Islam and human rights and women's rights and break that constructed binary as if all the forces of evil are on one side and the forces of good on the other. It is this voice that is challenging the intolerance, misogyny and conservatism that dominates much of what constitutes authority in the Muslim world today and therefore the ways Islam is understood and practiced. This movement is led by Muslim women activists working closely with scholars advocating a review and critical reinterpretation of the exegetical and jurisprudential texts and traditions within Islam. This work places emphasis on how religion is understood, how religious knowledge is produced, and how rights are constructed in the Islamic legal tradition, and how they can be constructed, reconstructed. It locates the production of religious knowledge in the social historical context of its time and asserts that given changing times and circumstances, new religious knowledge needs to be produced to deal with new challenges and questions and issues that the tradition had not dealt with. What makes this work exciting is that it is not done just at the theological level, but it is cutting edge work at the intersection of theology with law, politics and gender. The group I co-founded in Malaysia, Sisters in Islam, has since 1988 engaged with creating a public space and a public tradition of debate on matters related to religion. We take the position that in a country where Islam is used as a source of law and public policy, every citizen has a right to participate in how the religion is understood and used to make laws and policies to govern our lives. Unfortunately, very often in ways that discriminate against women and violate fundamental liberties. Sisters in Islam conduct regular study sessions and trainings to build knowledge on rights-based understanding of Islam that upholds equality and justice for women. We write letters to the editor, issue press statements and embark on campaigns to challenge laws, policies and statements that use Islam to justify discrimination against women. We also run a legal clinic that deals with over 800 cases a year providing women with gender-sensitive legal advice to enable them to access their rights under the Islamic family law. What Sisters in Islam have achieved over the years is really to break the stranglehold and hegemony over matters of religion in a society where traditionally women have been brought up to believe that only the ulama, the religious scholars, have the right to speak on Islam. Sisters take, takes the position that if a state wants to rule in the name of Islam, the impact of those laws, policies and practices must be open to public scrutiny and pass the test of public reason. The pioneering work of Sisters in Islam in Malaysia has had a global impact. In 2007, we led the initiative to form Musawa, the global movement for equality and justice in the Muslim family. 
Given the frustrations and opposition Muslim women activists faced in trying to push for reform of discriminatory Muslim family laws and the issue of women's rights in Islam, we felt it was high time that all of us who have for decades struggled against patriarchs in government, society, and in our private lives come together and create a very collective international public voice demanding our rights to equality and justice. First Musawa, which means equality in Arabic, was launched in February 2009 in Kuala Lumpur with over 250 participants from 47 countries, including including 32 members of the OIC. What Musawa brings to the larger women's and human rights movement, and in fact the Muslim world, is this. An assertion that Islam can be a source of empowerment, not a source of oppression and discrimination. An effort to open new horizons for rethinking the relationship between Islam and human rights, equality and justice. An offer to open a new constructive dialogue where religion is no longer an obstacle to equality for women, but a source for liberation. A collective strength of conviction and courage to stop governments and patriarchal authorities and ideological non-state actors from the convenience of using religion and the word of God to silence our demands for equality and a space where activists, scholars, decision makers, working within the human rights or the Islamic framework of both can interact and mutually strengthen our common pursuit of equality and justice. Since 2009, Musawa has gained an international reputation for its groundbreaking work in knowledge building, capacity building, and international advocacy. It challenges patriarchal inter interpretations of the Sharia from within Islamic tradition. It links scholarship with activism to bring new perspectives on Islamic teachings, inserting women's voices and concerns into the production of religious knowledge and legal reform in Muslim contexts. It uses a holistic framework, the Musawa framework for action, that integrates Islamic teachings, universal human rights standards, contemporary state constitutions and laws, and lived realities of women and men to argue for the possibility of reform. Our latest knowledge building project on Kiwama and Wilaya, twin concepts in the Islamic legal tradition that mandate male authority over women, has produced a groundbreaking publication, Men in Charge, question mark, Rethinking Authority in Muslim Legal Tradition. The book has received raving reviews from major Islamic scholars, and within a year of its publication, at least 20 universities in seven countries are using the book in various Islamic studies courses. The book has just been translated into Arabic and gaining public attention in the Arab world as well. Also works in two other key areas, capacity building and international advocacy. Our seven-day short course called Islam and Gender Equality and Justice exposes women's rights activists and policymakers to how knowledge is produced in the Islamic tradition by examining the methodology and conceptual tools used to build the interpretive and in Islam. The course is aimed largely at women's rights and human rights activists who already understand gender and human rights but have little understanding of Islam from a rights perspective. The only Islam they know is the patriarchal Islam they grew up with. And on the basis of this, many of them have rejected the possibility of engagement with religion as a source of reform and empowerment. But of course, religion has not gone away in their lives and in their society. That's the growing demand for the cause. I've just returned from Amman where I train a group of Palestinian activists and policymakers. Participants learn how the Quran is interpreted, how hadith is transmitted, how faith is constructed, all within a social context, and explore the possibilities of constructing new understandings to deal with changing times and circumstances, and develop action plans on strategies for reform, to build a voice and a culture of public debate on matters of religion. Over the past two years, Musawa have conducted seven regional trainings for activists from over 20 countries in South Asia, the Middle East and North Africa and the Horn of Africa. Many find this course life transforming. That it is possible to be Muslim and feminist and it renews their faith in the possibility that Islam can be just to women like them who want to remain in the faith and still stand up for equality and non-discrimination. In the area of international advocacy, the third area of Musawa's work, 
We are engaged deeply with the CEDAW process, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. We did a major research on CEDAW and Muslim family laws, critically examining how governments from major OIC countries use Islam to justify reservations and non-compliance to treaty obligations. We critique their approach and offer the Musawa Framework for Action as an approach that reconciles Islam with women's rights and provide the conceptual legal tools and language to argue for the possibility and for the possibility of equality and justice and reform of Muslim family laws. Today, Musawas regularly submits thematic reports on Article 16 on marriage and family relations whenever key Muslim countries report before the CEDAW committee. Our interventions in the CEDAW process have led to changes in language and concepts used by the CEDAW experts in their constructive engagement with governments. Governments that declare they cannot change their discriminatory personal status laws because they are God's laws and therefore divine are today regularly told by CEDAW committee members that this cannot possibly be so, pointing out to the diversity of laws in Muslim countries that provide for better rights and protection for women, all on the basis of Islam. Why does Tunisia ban polygamy? Why do Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon allow a woman to include in her marriage contract that the husband cannot take another wife and if he, and if he breaches this term, she is entitled to a divorce? Why does Morocco equal a minimum age of marriage for both boys and girls at 18? Why do Pakistan, Bangladesh, Morocco, Tunisia not require a woman to have a wali or a guardian in order to get married? Why do Turkey and Tunisia recognize the mother's equal right to guardianship of her children? The issue indeed is not that there cannot be reform because reform is indeed taking place in the Muslim world or that there cannot be equality and justice women in Islam. The issue is whether our governments and those in religious authority have the political will to end discrimination against women. The arguments for reform are there within our constitutional guarantees of equality and non-discrimination on the basis of gender, where many Muslim countries have this provision article in their constitution, within the human rights principles that many of our countries subscribe to when we agree to be a part of the international system, and not least, of course, in the realities of women's lives today and what it means to build and sustain the well-being of the family, all members of the family, not just one. Before I conclude the talk, let me share some understandings of a few key terms that Musawa uses to argue for the possibility of reform towards equality and justice. First, we make the distinction between what is Sharia and state law. Sharia literally means the way, the path. What we mean by Sharia is God's revelation to the Prophet as embodied in the Quran, encompassing ethical values and principles to guide humans in the direction of justice and right conduct. No person nor institution has the authority to claim certainty understanding divine will. Only God possesses perfect knowledge. This led to the development of fiqh which literally means understanding. It is the process by which humans attempt to derive the Quran and the Sunnah, the pieces of the Prophet. The classical Muslim juries develop rigorous methodologies and principles to establish a legal system that they believed could best reflect the divine will. And yet, none of them ever claim certainty over their opinions or their rulings. Certitude belongs only to God. So while Sharia, mutable and infallible, fiqh is changeable and fallible. Much of what we freely today label as Sharia law is actually fiqh, a human construction. It is on the basis of fiqh that many Muslim governments codify laws to regulate marriage and family. Polygamy is banned in Tunisia, permitted with conditions in countries like Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia, permitted without restrictions in some other countries. These decisions and conditions on the same issue are based on different fiqh opinions and understandings. The result of that decision to choose one fiqh opinion over another to codify into the law of the land for all Muslims to abide by is not divine law, but state laws passed by human beings sitting in legislative bodies, not by God. If they lead to injustice and cause harm, they of course can be challenged, questioned and changed so that the eternal principle of justice in Islam is upheld. Second, Musawa looks at the categories of laws in the Muslim legal tradition. Ibadat, rules that regulate the relationship between humans and God, 
Well, there is little room for disputation and mu'amalat, rules that regulate the relationship of humans with one another. Much of the debate and contestations going on now in the Muslim world about women's rights in Islam are about mu'amalat laws, where jurists for over 1,000 years ago have favored human reason, human experience, and discretion to serve the well-being of society, depending on time. Legal rulings when you move from Iraq to Egypt because of different circumstances and social conditions. This was a principle established over a thousand years ago. It is not a new invention of westernized feminists living in the Muslim world. It is the Muslim legal tradition that we should be proud of. Third, Musawa invokes the rich and sophisticated juristic concepts and tools in the Muslim legal tradition that make reform possible. There are the principles of maslaha, public interest, ihtilaf, differences of opinion, istihsan, choosing the best opinion in the interest of equity and justice, istislah, choosing the best opinion in the interest of public good. How do we apply these principles to solve the problems and contest challenges we face in the context of the 21st century in order to ensure that justice is done? Or do we continue to be in our willful resistance to the changing realities on the ground and shunt aside all that is good and rich in our tradition. In spite of the risks to our lives and liberty, Muslim women today are asserting that if Islam is to be used as a source of law and public policy, then everyone has a right to speak out the religion, how it is understood, practiced and codified into laws. Our experience of living Islam in Muslim context give us the authority and the right to speak out, to shape, to define and influence what it means to be Muslim in the 21st century. I would like to urge you to visit the websites of both Musawa and Sisters in Islam and to be proud of how far scholarship and activism on women's rights in Islam have progressed in our world and take action to be part of this growing global movement that is part of the reform movement in the Muslim world and that today is a source of hope for Muslims. To what extent do you think that the traditional ulama have been engaged with your work and what has been the response? Well, I don't think many of the traditional ulama are even aware <laughs> of the work of Musawa, um, you know, um, because they don't read. <laughs> uh, many of them don't read and a lot of our work, you know, is the knowledge that we produce is in print and is on the website, you know, so, but I, I can talk very easily, you know, of the response of um, policy makers and women's rights groups, um, you know, and of course progressive scholars, you know, that we have engaged with, you know. I think many scholars, Muslim scholars, scholars of Islam are really excited about the work that we're doing because our work translates knowledge into action. And I think scholars who just write and don't really engage you know, in don't engage in activism, um, don't really see the impact of their work immediately at the ground level. And I think their engagement, the reason why many scholars are keen to engage with Musawa, and I'm talking about scholars, many of them in the universities in different parts of the world, is because they see our work as relevant, contemporary, and exciting. Um, so, you know, like, for example, our work in the area of international advocacy, where we use the scholarship, the rights-based scholarship we have produced to really critique the ways Muslim governments use Islam to justify discrimination against women and to really engage with the activists on the ground and with the CEDAW um, committee experts and with the UN and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, you know, who very often institutions like the UN um, you know, go catatonic when governments fly the flag of Islam. They're, everybody is so terrified to engage with Islam. Okay, it's your religion, it's your culture, you deal with it. We have nothing to do with it. Um, but you have failed to comply with your treaty obligations, go change your laws. And many of them find it very unsatisfying to just tell governments, go change your laws, they violate your, the treaties you have um, ratified. 
you know, and they find it very unsatisfying because they can't provide a constructive way to enable governments to move forward. So Musawa's interventions in the past five years in Geneva with the CEDAW process really have provided substantive methodology, knowledge, and ways that government can move forward. And our research practices in Muslim family laws in over 30 Muslim countries point this out. So for the CEDAW committee members to be able to tell governments, you say it is, you know, it is not, it's against the teachings of Islam to set the minimum age of marriage at 18. But look at this whole slew of countries in the Muslim world that already have minimum age of marriage at 18. So these positive developments in Muslim family laws really show that reform towards justice and equality is possible in Islam. And for the policymakers who use the knowledge that Musawa produced, you know, they find it very, you know, it's much more satisfying and constructive to be able to point out to the Muslim governments that sit before them, you know, um, during this constructive dialogue process in Geneva to point out, you can change. Look at this country, look at that Muslim country, look at, you know, so, so all these examples that we produce to show the possibility of change is really very much welcome, certainly in the international system and certainly with the women's rights activists on the ground who deal with the challenge of you know the ways that the governments and Islamist activists and religious authorities use Islam to justify discrimination against women. And certainly it is also welcomed by academics, yeah, that teaching in the universities in the West and in the Muslim world too, that we engage with, you know, to really see how their work, how we engage with their work to, you know, in the various projects um, that we do. But the traditional ulama you know, and we've not engaged with them because, first of all, also the other thing is that Musawa work at the global level. We don't work at the national level. We engage at the national level with women's rights groups. You know, so we train them, the, the Islam, our seven day short course on Islam and gender equality and justice. So we engage with the women's groups at the national level. I mean, we engage at the national level through national level women's groups. So Musawa does not have a voice in each country. But of course, the women's groups at the national level do face opposition from traditional ulama, um, you know, in their demands for equality and justice. But Musawa, we don't because we work at the global level and the kinds of scholars we engage with are scholars in the universities. Muhammad Amin asks, what would you like Islam and Liberty Network to do regarding this subject matter? Um, I mean, you know, I, I would love to see Islam and Liberty Islam and liberty, freedom, <laughs> rights, um, you know, be a part of this of this movement, be a part of this global movement. And, you know, especially in terms of, I'm not quite sure, um, you know, how big is your network and your spread, but I think it's it would be really great because we see ourselves as part of the reform movement in the Muslim world, um, you know, and if Islam and Liberty Network is a part of that Muslim world, I think it'd be wonderful, a part of that reform movement, it would be great because so, many, so often, um, you know, many, many scholars or groups that consider themselves progressive and reform minded when it comes to women's rights, you know, the door, the door stops at women's rights, you know, so it's, it is a challenge for us um, when many scholars, you know, um, who, who are seen as part of the reform movement don't read our works, um, don't promote our work and don't believe um, in women's rights. Uh, women's rights to equality and justice. Dini Hairudin asks, I just have a quick question regarding feminism in Malaysia. I understand that the whole notion of feminism has not been fully embraced in Malaysia. So what would be the ideal way to educate our society that feminism is very much needed in the context of matrimonial decision without coming across as a radical activist? Well, <laughs> that's a huge challenge. Um, actually, I mean, you know, join Sisters in Islam, you know, Sisters in Islam has been around for 30 years. And I guess if you want to bring change, you will be labeled. You know, especially if you're a woman, you're a Muslim woman, you declare yourself a feminist. You know, how many whammies are against you, right? You're a feminist, you're a Muslim, you, you want to justify for equality, equality and justice um, in the name of Islam. Um, so I always tell um, the activists that we train, 
that if you want to engage in this kind of work, you need to be ready for the attacks against you. Um, you know, change does not come to us on a silver platter. So you have to believe in what you're doing and, and organize yourself. I mean, I, I don't know, um, Dini, whether you know you are part of a women's rights movement. It's important um, to be a part of a group because you know you know the kind of attacks, terrible attacks against women and against feminists on the social net. You know, you on 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 social media. You know, you stand up. You have a voice. You're a radical. You know, a woman who doesn't have a voice is the most appreciated woman. But when you have a voice and that voice stands up for women's rights, stand up for justice in the religion and it challenges the patriarchal uh, misogynistic interpretations of the religion, you're going to be accused of being radical. So just live with that accusation because I think it's hard to control what others think of you. So I think it's more important that you believe in the justice of Islam and your fundamental right as a Muslim woman who is affected by Islamic laws, you know, in ways that 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 are detrimental and harmful to your well-being, that you believe that you as a Muslim and as a citizen have a right to speak out on these issues. So have courage, join groups, uh, be part of a group because it's important to have friends and supporters around you when you want to speak out. Liana Kairudin asks, Will having more women ulama help in progressing rights within Islam or would this only reinforce conservative patriarchal notions? I love the idea of having more and more women ulama. I was um, in Indonesia, in Cirebon, in April, no, when was it? A few months ago, at a conference of 500 women ulama. Many people are not aware of what's going on in Indonesia because of, you know, largely language problem because they speak, you know, Bahasa Indonesia um, mostly. And a lot of the incredible progressive scholarship that comes out of Indonesia is not known to the rest of the Muslim world. And it's amazing how these women ulama, they're women at the very grassroots level who are speaking out you know, about women's rights in Islam, about ending child marriage, um, about domestic, going against domestic violence. You know, they are really grass, they're not westernized feminists by any stretch of the imagination. They don't know any other language, but Bahasa Indonesia and Arabic, um, you know, and through their own learnings, this is why I think a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. These women ulama are trained in religion. They attended the madrasas, studied religion, and are very well-versed and very confident. And for me, when you see this traditional grassroots women ulama, yeah? So Ali may be referring again to your question of traditional. The traditional women ulama at the grassroots level in Indonesia who teach the Quran, who teach hadith, who teach fiqh, um, who teach you know, religion in the Pesantrans in Indonesia, in the madrasas in Indonesia, they are standing up for women's rights. You know, it, it really just shows, you know, that, you know, because, you know, they come from the ground. They know the suffering of 13, 14 year old girls who've been taken out of their madrasas and forced to marry a 30 year old man. And how a year later the marriage is broken down and that little girl comes back to the Pesantren, you know, with a baby in the arms, you know, so they know the realities on the ground of how much women are suffering and how much harm this misogyny that is justified in the name of Islam is causing to young women. And so, and their knowledge of Islam, their knowledge of lived realities, in the end, compel them to organize themselves into a network, you know, to speak out on all these issues that discriminate against women. So I think it's very empowering, you know, because in the end, Liana, we want to change, um, you know, the mindset and the values and the behavior of people at the grassroots level so that their lives can be better. And having the women ulama who have direct contact with the women at the grassroots level, you know, and being able to empower women at the grassroots level to fight for the right to stand up against child marriage, to stand up against the husband's desire for a second wife is extremely empowering and important. Muhammad Amit asks, 
Do you have articles from Musawa that we could republish in our website? I mean, do please visit both the website of Musawa and Sisters in Islam because, you know, Musawa is a knowledge building movement. And we just have here, I have right in front of me. <laughs> um, these are the knowledge building briefs that we have produced, um, you know, to help activists, ordinary women, activists, policymakers as well, because people don't have time to read textbooks and academic texts. We produce textbooks as well, but we want to make it accessible and readable. So our uh, book on men in charge, authority in Muslim legal tradition, um, the concepts that we use to argue for the possibility of change, for the possibility of reform, you know, towards justice and equality. We look, we come up with this little, just four page, knowledge, what we call the knowledge building brief. So this is brief one called Sharia, Fifth and State Laws. What makes reform possible? What are the legal tools in the, in the, in the tradition that make reform possible? This is the third one, Islam and the, and the question of gender equality, Muslim context. And this is the fourth one on Sido and Muslim family laws, you know, and, and these are done in very simple, small clusters of information to enable people to read it very easily, very quickly. And then if you need more information, you go to our website, you read our books and our publications. And to make it even more readable, we're actually coming up with um, two minute videos <laughs> to make it even easy for people to read. Because read, you know, Ikra is the first word revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. And yet, you know, many Muslims still do not read. And basically, you can't do this work without reading, without knowledge. Knowledge is so important. So on the Musawa website, it would be great if you can spread, you know, our video. We've got our the first video, two minutes only, on Sharia, Faith and State Laws. And many people have found it very, very useful and very easy to understand. And we are about to launch the second um, two-minute video on Muslim family law, what makes reform possible that looks at the legal tools and concepts for reform to take place. So there are lots of tons and tons of materials that you can promote and they're available in Arabic as well. So m many of the new works that we have produced, we do, we work both in English and in Arabic because there is interest and there is demand for our work um, in the Arab world. So we're responding to that demand and we also translate into French as well because there's a huge diaspora, um, Arabic, um, French speaking um, diaspora um, living in the West. Um, and also, of course, Francophonic countries um, in Africa who are also in need of the work. So we're working in three languages, in English, in Arabic, and in French. And really, it would be great if your network can promote um, you know, these mounds of um, knowledge that we have produced and spread wider. Katija Bardi would ask, My concern is that female genital mutilation is becoming more prominent in Muslim world, i.e. Malaysia and Indonesia. Has Musawa a plan of action to stop this? What Musawa does, we, you know, we, we engage with the tradition um, through family law, through the personal status law. We don't deal with every single issue, but what, what the methodology of interpretation, the methodology, methodology that Musawa has adopted has enabled women's rights activists working in many different issues. They're able to apply our methodology our using our framework action, using principles of, um, you know, the legal tools for reform, like public interest, maslaha, differences of opinion, ikhtilaf, um, using the difference between what is, um, you know, ibadat laws and what is muamalat laws, using all these principles that Musawa uses to argue for the possibility of reform um, towards equality and justice, many women's groups have been able to use our knowledge to apply to their issues. So, for example, if you want to look um, at um, the issue of FGM, um, one of our strongest advocates, um, Gamko Trop, um, which is a women's rights group in Gambia that works on FGM. In fact, they successfully, not them alone, of course, but they have been part of the women's movement against FGM that successfully um, got the government of the Gambia to criminalize um, FGM, yeah? And so they've used our methodology to train the women, the cutters, the traditional women who practice FGM, who conduct FGM in the villages. They use our approach and our knowledge and our work 
um, to train um, grassroots women leaders to drop the knife. You know that there's nothing in Islam. It's not in the Quran. FGM is not in the Quran. And I remember um, Aisha Tuture, the leader, the president of Gamkotra, who is now actually the minister of trade in the Gambia. When she came to the launch of Musawa in 2009, um, no, actually when she attended the first training that Sisters in Islam before Musawa did in 2006 on Islam and gender equality and justice, and she found out that FGM is not part of the, it's not in the Quran, it's not Islamic, it's an African tradition, it's cultural, it's not religious. You know, she said, I feel I have been cheated of a relationship with God. I have been denied all these years. I've been denied, you know, a, 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 a comfortable and peaceful relationship with God because they've been all been brought up to believe that FGM is in the Quran. And for them to discover that it's actually not in the Quran, you know, it's like, you know, what do you mean? I've been duped. I've been cheated all these years. You know, that's the kind of Islam that I've been brought up with, you know, so it's very empowering for women. You know, that's why knowledge is extremely important. Reading and doing the research is extremely important. And certainly there is a lot of work out there, Khadija, um, about Islam and how this is not, it doesn't have its roots in Islam and it is certainly not in the Quran and it's really a cultural practice. So you can certainly, um, you know, take action you know, to do that. And many groups in Africa certainly has been doing this. Yeah, and certainly um, there's also a fatwa from Al-Azhar that says FGM is haram. So there are lots and lots of excellent materials, um, you know, in the Muslim world and in Islam to deal with the whole issue of FGM that can be used um, to, 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 to deal with it in, in countries like Malaysia and Indonesia. I think, I think you know, we have, um, you know, an identity crisis, you know, among many Muslims, you know, when um, practices that are not Islamic, but, but, and many other countries have changed and ended those practices because they're harmful and we still remain practicing it. And then suddenly it becomes an idea, you know, um, you know, the same with, with polygamy, you know, polygamy is Islam did not invent polygamy and many countries because, because of the harmful impact of polygamy on the family institution, many countries have banned polygamy and made it illegal. And then we, you know, in Malaysia, you know, for the Chinese, for the Indians in Malaysia, polygamy is illegal. You know, the, the, the family law governing the non-Muslims in Malaysia makes polygamy illegal. And now when Muslim women, you know, women's rights group want to campaign against polygamy, and not even calling for a ban on polygamy, but making it more difficult, um, you know, we're told of that we're going against Islam, you know, so it's like as if polygamy becomes such an important identity marker for the Muslim men that, you know, it cannot be touched, you know, and the same for FGM, you know, it's not rooted in Islam. And yet there's so many who believe, you know, because it's not practiced, you know, in the context of Malaysia, it's a multi-ethnic, multi-religious country, because it's not practiced among the Chinese and the Indians, and it becomes an identity marker for the Muslim community to separate us from the other, you know? So, you know, just like resistance to change, even though it brings no, the practice brings no benefit um, and in fact cause harm to women. Ali Salman asked, when you recently were in Geneva and spoke about Malaysia on this issue, how was the reaction from Malaysian people generally? The reaction was mixed. It was, it was incredible when I was, this is the question about um, in Geneva, when Malaysia, both Malaysia and Saudi Arabia in the last year session um, had the constructive dialogue session and, and both Twitter handles trended. In Malaysia, Sidor Malaysia trended at number two. In Saudi Arabia, it trended at number nine. And just shows a level of interest, um, you know, in, in, in the debate that's going on. Um, and of course, um, you know, there were those who were against us and those who were for us, you know, but I think it was really Many people were actually embarrassed by the poor performance of the Malaysian delegation um, in Geneva. And, you know, because Malaysia had failed to report um, to the CEDAW committee um, for 10 years, 11 years, 12 years, you know, 2006 was the last time um, that Malaysia reported. And so the government was really totally out of touch with what was going on in the international world and in Geneva and in the, you know, with the CEDAW. 
um, sessions. And there was a guy from the Attorney General's chambers um, who was asked a question about inheritance, inequality in inheritance. And he whipped out the Quran and started reading from the Quran the verse on inheritance. And of course, the CEDAW committee was very, very upset and said, look, you know, do you live in a democracy or do you live in a theocratic state? You know, why are you with Quran and reading from the Quran um, here in Geneva? Um, the, another guy from the Attorney General's chambers also justified FGM saying that it is an Islamic practice. This is like a senior government official justifying FGM as an Islamic practice. And of course, there were five CEDAW committee members who are Muslims, who come from Muslim countries that don't practice FGM, you know. So they were outraged, you know, the Lebanese member, the Bangladeshi member, the Egyptian member who quoted the Al-Azhar Fatwa saying this haram in Islam. And, um, and in exasperation, the CEDAW committee members asked the Malaysian delegation, how is it that you can justify everything bad that happens to women to Islam? Why? You know, is FGM is not an Islamic practice. I come from a Muslim country. It is not practiced in my country. So how can you say this is an Islamic practice? You know, and the Egyptian member, of course, quoted the, the fatwa from Al-Azhar to say that it is haram. I, of course, from the women's rights groups, from the human rights movement, from the journalists that were watching the CEDAW Eater live, yeah, there was live transmission of the CEDAW chain. I mean, everybody, you know, the government, um, you know, for being so unprepared and totally uncertain um, in their answers to the questions um, raised in Geneva. But of course, there were the usual um, you know, all these women's rights groups are against Islam. That's a very typical, you know, Sisters in Islam began in 1988 and we went public in 1990. This is 1918. So it's been 28 years. From day one, they said we're doing is against Islam until seven, 28 years later, not move, is against Islam. Never mind if the realities on the ground um, has changed. But as I said, this world, you know, is controversial world. You want to engage, you want to push for women's rights, you want to engage with the Islam to justify that, you know, treating women as human beings of equal worth and dignity is actually very Islamic, that there are many conservative Muslims who find that offensive. So I don't know where that Islam comes from. It's certainly not the Islam that we believe in. The Islam that we believe in and the God that we believe in is a God that is just and Islam that is just. And for me, it is an article of faith. God cannot be God if God is not just. Yeah, it has, what is the objective of Islam? What is the objective? Introduce Sharia law, Islamic law in this world to bring about justice. If it causes injustice, if it causes harm, if it causes pain, is that Islam? I cannot accept. We in Musawa and Sisters in Islam cannot accept that God intends for half the human race that he has created to live in pain and in harm and to be unhappy. Yeah, I, it's just not acceptable. It cannot possibly be Islam. Ayra Azhari asks, Zaina, why do you think there is such a poor understanding and scholarship of women's rights in Islam in the highest corridors of power in Malaysia? Is it because they really believe Islam allows these injustices against women or is it just a refusal to learn a religion? I think many reasons. Um, part of it is really ignorance. They really don't know because they really studied Islam in very traditional, the traditional patriarchal. That's the only Islam that they've been exposed to, the traditional patriarchal misogynistic Islam that's lost in translation and lost in the 21st century. That's that's how they studied. But some of them, I think, know. We know some of the, the Malaysians who speak out about reform, about reinterpretation, but it stops at the door of women's rights. Yeah, so it's that is really misogyny, it's patriarchy because it's their personal interest that's being challenged, that's going to be undermined. You know, and 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 you know, if 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 change actually takes place and women are treated, you know, as equal to men, yeah, they think that it is one one you know one woman's gain is a man's loss is is a, a zero sum game that they look at when we think that if all human beings are able to reach their full potential before God in this world 
in the afterlife that you know that this world will be a much better place to live it you know if all of us have the freedom and have the opportunity to be the fullest that we can be i mean for me that makes a much better world but some of those in authority those in privileged positions feel threatened by that yeah so instead of like making themselves better so that they can compete and thrive in a better world for everyone they choose to put you know half the human race down so that they can be superior privilege and that to me is sad but i think there is also politics it's identity politics you know in malaysia i think it's very convenient um you know um you know to divide and rule um to use religion to use race um you know to keep the other to identify you know that this is a threat religion is a threat race is is a threat so that the dominant party in power can to remain in power so part of it is really mm, a big part of it is really politics because if it's really about islam if it's truly an islamic the knowledge is out there if you believe in justice if you believe in equality if you feel that the laws that discriminate against women should be reformed and they believe that the laws that discriminate against women should be reformed but only for non muslim women are muslim women supposed to you know and let the wheels run over us you know because it supposedly is against islam you know so if they really believe if they really believe in equality and injustice and injustice they the readings are all out there it's not rocket science and it's not like this is the 21st century you know when this began um in the late 80s there was nothing there was hardly any scholarship on islam and women's rights except by you know ashka ali engineer you know there was like nothing but today oh my god the scholarship is so rich what's coming out from muslim scholars living in the in the muslim world living in the west they're all muslims living in the west coming out with this incredible scholarship on islam and women's rights on islam and human rights on reform um in islam is amazing i mean i find i've been in this work for 30 years i find it still extremely exciting work because there's just scholarship coming out you know new scholarship coming out all the time you know and um so really for me is really the lack of political will that's the problem with the malaysian authorities they they really don't believe in equality if they believe in equality certainly there are many arguments in islam that they can use to support reform of discriminatory laws the constitution provides for equality and non discrimination they can use the constitution they are signatory to cedo they can use international convention and the live realities you know of women today in malaysia you know so they if they believe that there is there should be equality and justice for women in islam the road to reform is open and we will be there to support them but they don't believe in it because it doesn't serve their interest so we can be asked Why do you think it is that women's bodies are always the first point of contention to show how Islamic a government or authority is? I guess it's the easiest way because it's so visible. Women's body and women's presence in the public space is so visible. Um you know, I've been told so many times um by other women actually who say Zaina, actually what you say is right, is good. But the only problem is you don't wear the hijab. Why don't you wear the hijab? You know, you wear the hijab you'll be more accepted. Look, I mean I want to wear the hijab. <laughs> you know, is she accepted? No, is in the you know, it's really just one reason after another to basically demonize and delegitimize you. And for many Islamist groups, I guess, um you know the the woman's body, the very physical presence of the woman in the public space you know is is the is the easiest to target because of their presence in the public space so hide that body shut that voice um you know cover up so that your presence minimize your felt presence in the public space you know um so i guess in the end it's really about misogyny you know it's just misogyny endless misogyny that still very much rules um the world you know in many in many of our contexts today unfortunately um there's a question as muslims when we support such open ideas of liberalism first thing that happens is that we are personally attacked for the way we are following our religion what is the best 
response to such a situation? Well, in, in Musawa, we always deal with, you know, we approach the text from context. What is the lived reality? What is the issue here we're facing? What is the challenge? What is the problem we're trying to solve? And so if the, the problem is, you know, whether it's polygamy, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's child marriage, whether it's FGM, let's start from that problem. So don't go straight as a strategy, straight into a battle of verses, because this is the mistake that some people um, go into. Identify what is the problem we are trying, we're confronting, what's the problem we want to solve, what is the challenge we are facing, and if the, the arguments against the kind of change that we want comes where the knowledge of Islam is extremely important, when they say, oh, you're a liberal, that's why you believe in women's rights, that's why you believe, um, you know, that polygamy, um, you know, should be restricted or should even be banned, you know, because you're a liberal. No, I'm a Muslim who believes in justice. I'm a Muslim who believes that God is just. I'm a Muslim who believes that there are principles within Islam, uh, you know, the principle of public interest, the principle of justice, the principle of equity, the principle of dignity, the principle of compassion. I mean, the Quran is just rich with verses and values, you know, that, that brings dignity to the life of a human being, and that human being includes a woman. So, so this is why knowledge is important, so that you can argue within Islam that being liberal is actually not un-Islamic, that being liberal, recognizing change, recognizing justice, recognizing equality is actually part of the teachings of Islam. So this is why like in all the trainings that Musawa does, we really, really urge everyone, you know, to really start reading and get familiar with, you know, the, the wonderful verses in the Quran, the rich Muslim legal tradition that enables you to justify why change is possible. It's really important. Knowledge is just so important. You know, I mean, I, like I mentioned earlier, I just came back from a training for Palestinians and, and they're Arabs, they're Muslims, you know, but they have not engaged with this approach to understanding Islam, to understand how knowledge is produced in the tradition, to understand that knowledge is produced within a social context. And that given a changing social context where women's lives have changed, where how we understand justice, how we understand harm, you know, have changed, that, you know, we can argue for that possibility of a different understanding of Islam, different understanding of the message to ensure that the eternal principle of justice is forever the objective of what it means to be Muslim or to use Islamic law, um, you know, to govern our lives, you know. So I think we need to change the terms of the debate and not just be defensive and ask them to prove, you know, why? Why is liberalism, liberalism against Islam? You know, ask them to prove, you know, get them to answer that question. Ali Salman asks, do you see any difference in attitude towards gender justice in different parts of the Muslim world? Well, it's kind of like hard to generalize. Um, I think for me, the in, ter in terms of um, scholarship, so I, I, I would need to differentiate the answer in terms of scholarship, Indonesia, Tunisia, Morocco, amazing, amazing scholarship to recognize um, gender justice. The Moroccans um, have just come up with a whole book on rethinking um, the Farah Aid rules in inheritance, you know, that discriminate against women to rethink the Farah Aid rules um, division of inheritance. They've, in a whole book in Arabic, in French, and in English, they've just distributed that book, you know, so that comes up from the establishment religious authority from the Muhammad Rabita Muhammadiyah. Um, Tunisia, you can see the president um, talking about the need to, you know, the inheritance rule is like the last bastion for reform. You know, everybody says it's difficult because those shares, those fixed shares are in the Quran. But, you know, Tunisia is doing it. Uh, Morocco is doing it. Tunisia, the government has set up a committee to look at these unfair inheritance rules and how they can be reformed. And some of the scholars that we work with are putting, um to this committee to rethink the inheritance rules in the context of 
today's world where women are earning financially, where women are providing for the family, where women are the protectors of the family and not just men. So men are supposed to get double the share of inheritance because of their role as the provider and protector of the family. What happens when women are the provider and protector of the family? What happens when is the woman who takes care of the aging parents until they die? They take care of the parents financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, but when the parents die, the brother who doesn't do anything to take care of the aging parents get double the share? Is that just? These are the questions that are being asked. And, and both Morocco and Tunisia, the human rights groups have done research on the ground to document cases of the ways families have gotten around these inheritance rules to ensure that there is justice in the division of um, the property after the death of the parents. Because, you know, the parents knew that this is not fair, that my son should get, you know, my drug addict son or my irresponsible son should get double the share of the daughter who's taking care of them. So families go out of their way to figure out how to avoid um, the inheritance rule. So that's why the scholarship in Morocco, I believe, you know, Morocco and Tunisia and Indonesia, really in terms of scholarship, they probably would be the most forward-looking towards gender justice. In terms of laws, um, again, in the research that we have done is, again, is the, the, the North African countries, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, um, are the most progressive in terms of their legal framework. And Turkey, of course, but Turkey did not use Islamic arguments to justify the reform towards equality, while Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia use Islamic arguments. In terms of activism, I, you know, we should be proud of Malaysia because really, you know, Sisters in Islam really is the pioneering group in the Muslim world that engages with Islam from a rights perspective. We began, people are always shocked that we began this work, you know, almost 30 years ago before Islam became fashionable, before there was any interest about Islam and women's rights. We were doing this work from the late 1980s because of our concern in terms of what's going on, where family law governing non-Muslims have advanced to recognize equality and non-discrimination, while Muslim family law was going backwards instead of forward. And of course, the rise of political Islam in Malaysia um, and the kind of um, Churamas talks that we hear over radio, over tele television, in the mosques, in the surahs, you know, that talk about you know, women are inferior to men, women must obey men, a man has a right to four wives, a man has a right to be his wife. We were just hearing all these talks everywhere that we felt we really needed to do something to organize ourselves and to challenge this misogyny and patriarchy justified in the name of Islam. And that's really how Sisters in Islam began. So in terms of activism, of engaging with Islam from a rights perspective, Malaysia is really at the, the cutting edge of work. And of course, Indonesia too as well. But I think in terms of, you know, having that loud voice, it's really in Malaysia that that is happening. And for me, it's just so interesting and so sad as well. When we do our training, our seven-day course on understanding Islam from a rights perspective, how many women's rights activists have told us that, you know, they're so scared to deal with Islam. They're so scared to engage with Islam. But you're born a Muslim. The laws governing you are made in the name of Islam. So much of the injustice is justified in the name of Islam. But because of their belief, they've been brought up with this idea that this is God's law, it's divine law, it cannot be changed. They've been brought up with the idea that men are superior, women are inferior, never mind the realities of their lives. The fact is they are, you know, highly qualified women who hold leadership position that they just don't want to deal with the religion. So they'd rather fight for women's rights just using human rights framework, UN principles and all that. But of course, their demand for law to recognize equality are challenged, you know, because you know, the, the ulama on the ground, the grassroots ulama will go to the women at the grassroots level and say, oh, these are all Western feminist ideas and un-Islamic, yeah? And they really have no answers, like in the trainings that we do, you know, they said all these questions about injustice towards, I, I was training in, in, in Amman and one of the Palestinian women said she was forced to marry at the age of 14 and she refused to sign a marriage contract 
because she's a little girl. She's not ready to get married. She wanted to go to school, but she was forced to sign the marriage contract. Um, and so, you know, she was into a forced marriage. And she said all these questions. I had all these questions, but she didn't have the space to, to, you know, to find the answers in a safe space. All these questions. So many of the women's rights groups, um, individuals, um, activists that we train, have all these burning questions inside them from childhood, but they never found the safe space. They never found the answers. Never found the safe space. Or they turn their back against religion or forget about Islam. I don't want to have anything to do with this unjust religion. And I feel that our ulama should be grateful for the work of women's groups like Sisters in Islam, like Musawa, because we are actually bringing Muslims back to the religion. We've had it in our trainings where women say, oh God, I've not touched the Quran in eight years. I've not touched the Quran in 13 years. And it's only now that I'm touching the Quran because we ask them to bring the Quran to the training session so that they can open the Quran and look at the verses and look what the Quran actually says and look at the different in the same verse interpreted differently by Fukaha or Tafsir Mufasirun. Um, so we get them to really understand what the Quran says and how it is understood, how it is interpreted, how fiqh is derived, you know, is make law and legal principles um, are produced and how laws are made. We make them look at fatwas, fatwa on FGM. We make them look at the fatwa from Al-Azhar that says FGM is haram and the fatwa from Malaysia that says FGM is wajib, you know, is, 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 is mandatory unless it causes harm, you know, and we make them look at what are the dalil, what are the reasons, what are, you know, the justifications used by Al-Azhar, what are the justifications used by the Malaysian Fatwa Council, nothing in common, absolutely nothing in common, and yet both claim this is Islam. So whose Islam? What Islam is the right Islam? That is the question discriminatory and Islam that is just, yeah, and promotes, you know, dignity and respects freedom. Yeah. So which Islam do we want? For me, of course, it is an Islam that is just. Is it an Islam that regards women as human beings of equal worth and dignity? And that is in the Quran. In the eyes of God, we are equal to men. We're both, you know, equally enjoined to do our duties. We're both equally rewarded, you know, so we are equal in the eyes of God. Why in the eyes of men, we are not well, you know, so that's the big challenge that, you know, I think more and more voices need to speak up and challenge this. It is really important in our trainings. We tell them for change to take place, you have to do this in the public space. Katija Bardi would ask, how is this training available to those who wishes to attend in Malaysia? We have one training coming up in Malaysia in June, but I think um, the closing date is already closed, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, um, you can try and get in touch with us and see if there's any possibility, but we're not organizing it. It's Sisters in Islam that's organizing it and probably they have already identified because we take only a maximum of 25 participants um, per training. And we already have a Sisters in Islam already has a waiting list as well. So, yeah, so it's going to take place in June. Unfortunately, um, you know, you've missed you've missed that that training session. But actually, we're we're discussing about turning the Islam and gender equality and justice course into an online course because there is so much demand for the cause. And we just don't have the capacity to meet um, all the demands. But do visit the website um, Khadija and we'll see what can, we can do. Yeah, yeah. there's um, no subscription. So anyone is free to just go visit, yeah, visit the website and to sign on to our newsletter. We have a quarterly newsletter called uh, Musawa Vision. This is a question from Aisha. Um, the website is musawa.org.com. Uh, sorry, just musawa.org, yeah? So M-U-S-A-W-A-H.org. Um, so do visit because it's really rich with materials, um, tons and tons of resources, um, you know, um, on Islam and women's rights, on equality and justice that you can go to, you can get from there. So thank you so much, um, everyone, for joining us. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, this opportunity, and it's something that Musawa itself um, should consider, um, you know, bringing in our resource persons. We have resource persons on Quran, on fiqh, on hadith, you know, to get them 
on to this webinar. Thank you so much, Ali, for this opportunity and to the team at um, Istanbul Network as well for inviting me and for organizing this. This webinar is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. And if you want to help us, there is a donation button on the site. Thank you for your support and we hope you found it interesting.